0: Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Micah Schwartzman. I'm the uh, director of the Karch Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia School of Law. Uh, the Karch Center is a nonpartisan legal institute whose mission is to promote the understanding and appreciation of principles and practices necessary for a well-functioning pluralistic democracy, including civil discourse, civic engagement, and citizenship, ethics and integrity in public office, and respect for the rule of law. Um, I want to thank the Miller Center for sponsoring this program and I also want to recognize uh, the University of Virginia's Institute of Democracy for more generally supporting our efforts to understand what's uh, been happening uh, since uh, the aftermath of the um, presidential election um, in November. Our topic today is whether the president can pardon himself. Um, As President Trump prepares to leave office, uh, can he give himself a presidential pardon? Is that constitutional? Um, we want to ask questions about uh, the arguments uh, for and against self-pardoning. What does the original meaning of the Constitution say uh, about this issue? Um, Is there precedent for it? Um, This expert panel will focus on the constitutional basis of the pardon power, its history and limits, the relationship between pardoning and impeachment, um, which which of course has become uh, that much more important uh, this week. Um, and also the legal and political implications of an attempt by the president uh, to self-pardon. We have with us today uh, three um, experts in this area. Let me introduce them in the order in which I'll ask them uh, to present. First is Brian Colt, who is a professor of law and the Harris, uh, Harold Norris Faculty Scholar at Michigan State University. His research focuses on structural constitutional law and juries. His recent publications include the books, Constitutional Cliffhangers, uh, A Legal Guide for Presidents and Their Enemies, and uh, incredibly timely, um, the book, Unable, The Law, Politics, uh, and Limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. Next is John, um, sorry, in order of presentation is, uh, is Professor Bernadette Myler, uh, who is the Carl uh, and Sheila Spaeth Professor of Law, Uh, and professor by courtesy uh, in English um, and the Associate Dean for Research and Intellectual Life at Stanford University. She's a scholar of British and American Constitutional Law and of Law and the Humanities um, and a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow in Constitutional Studies. Um, And we have with us as well my colleague John Harrison, who is the James Madison Distinguished Professor of Law and the Thomas F. Bergen Teaching Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law. He uh, joined our faculty after a distinguished career with the US Department of Justice, including the Office of Legal Counsel. He's also served as counselor um, on international law in the Office of the Legal Advisor at the US uh, Department of State. I'm going to give our panelists about 10 minutes to share some thoughts uh, about the questions that I've uh, prompted um, and perhaps uh, other other, uh, ideas and thoughts about this topic. And then we'll have about 30 minutes for question and answers. If you have a question, please uh, enter it in the Q&A function, which should be at the bottom of your screen. And I'll convey those questions uh, to our panelists. I'm going to start with uh, with Brian Colt, And maybe you can begin by telling us uh, what the pardon power is and uh, and what is its basis in the Constitution. Article 2
1: gives the president the power to uh, grant pardons and. Re- reprieves uh, for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. And uh, there aren't a lot of limits expressed in the text. So it is one of the president's broadest, least limited powers. It's not subject to congressional authorization uh, like most of his uh, take care powers. It's not subject to judicial review. The merits of a pardon anyway are not reviewable in court under the political question doctrine. Um, But the self-pardon presents an interesting question as to whether and what sorts of other limits might exist. Um, And starting with the text, uh, I just said there aren't a lot of limits there, but there are limits implicit in the notion of what a pardon actually is. So, for instance, as an analogy, um, a pardon can only be granted for something that the person receiving the pardon has already done. You can't pardon future acts. The Constitution doesn't say that. It's just implicit in the definition of what a pardon is. So uh, one textual argument against self-pardon is that a pardon is inherently something that you give to somebody else. Um, The Latin root uh, of pardon uh, comes from its the same root as words like condone uh, or donate you can't make a donation to yourself. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, you can pass money from one hand to another, but if you call it a donation, you're wrong. It it just doesn't fit the category. And so the argument goes, uh, that is not a pardon. Um, Similarly, the Constitution talks about granting pardons, and uh, some have argued that granting something inherently means something you give to someone else. Um, there's also, uh, not in the text, but in the sort of general jurisprudence, the principle that you cannot be the judge in your own case. Of course, a pardon isn't something that a judge gives. The president isn't being a judge, he's being a president. But if you look at the pardon as part of the criminal justice process, um, it would be odd if, unlike everyone else at every other stage, the president was able to deal himself some sort of, um, some sort of uh, self-judgment. If you're a criminal defendant, we don't let you be on the jury. We don't let you be the prosecutor. We don't let you be the judge. And arguably, we don't let you be the president who decides if you should get a pardon or not. In all of those other cases, we have someone else fill that role and here the argument would be someone else should be president. Someone else, your successor, should decide whether you merit a pardon or not. Finally, there's a structural argument against self-pardons. The the presidency is supposed to be limited, and the the pardon power derives in in a lot of ways from the British monarch's pardon power. Um, It's more limited in some ways, but The issue of the self pardon wouldn't come up in the British context because the king, it's not that the king couldn't have pardoned himself in 1787, it's that such a thing wouldn't make sense. The king could do no wrong. He couldn't be prosecuted. Um, He he could be deposed and executed, but such extra legal options wouldn't respond to the pardon power either. So um, when we think about converting, translating the king's pardon power to the president's pardon power, we're left with a translation problem. Um, presidents aren't supposed to be kings. Uh, at the same time, they can pardon people, which makes them look like kings. But um, a self pardon is something that would allow the president to sort of burst free from the limits that the constitution imposes. You're supposed to be president until you're not. If you're a king, you're a king for the rest of your life. But if you're a president, you're supposed to at some point not be president anymore. Uh, allowing a president to pardon himself would be allowing him to project his power as president past uh, the end of his term in a way that doesn't sit well with the structure. Um, I, I did want to say briefly uh, something about scholarship in general, because I know there are some uh, students in the audience, and that is. This question came up for me uh, when I was a second year law student in criminal procedure class. We were talking about presidential pardons because you know, it's, it's Yale, so uh, we had to get all theoretical. right? Uh, and I raised my hand and I said, can the president pardon himself? And the professor, Akiel Amar, said, uh, I don't know. You should look into that. And I did. And uh, I, there, there had been nothing written on it, so I decided I would. And it was my note, my student note in the law journal. And uh, the reason I bring this up is to encourage uh, law students and law professors to write about things like this, that people might make fun of you, as, as they did back in the mid-90s when I wrote this, and say, this is never going to happen. Why are you writing about things that will never happen? And, and the answer is twofold. One, maybe it won't ever happen, but if it does, it would be very consequential. And we need to look at both. Um, learned hand tests from torts, right? The probability of something happening and the magnitude if it does. Um, Second, it helps to think about these things beforehand. So I'm very proud to be here talking about arguments that I thought about in the mid nineties when I had no idea that Donald Trump would ever be president. Uh, I had no idea what he might pardon himself for. Uh, I just looked at what I thought the law was And I think it's important for us to do as much work as we can to figure out what the law is before uh, we know whether we want one side to win or the other, because that gives us honest answers. And ideally, uh, it also gives people something to work with. Right now, we're seeing a lot of hot takes uh, in the the media, but eventually we're going to move on from hot takes and op-eds to briefs and, and testimony, and when that happens, it helps if someone has done the work, has written the footnotes. Um, Very quickly, the argument that the president can pardon himself is, Constitution doesn't say he can't, um, and uh, it's a broad power, so we look for limits. If we don't see them, then uh, they aren't there. Again, I've already addressed why I think that's not right, but it it is a reasonable argument. Uh, The pardon power is broad, and we have no precedent. Um, because there are reasonable arguments on either side, courts could go either way on this. When people ask me if the president can pardon himself, I say he can try. Um, and a court will have to decide. And I can't say what the court would decide. I can say what I would decide were I a judge, but I'm not. Um, so, uh, so we'll find out. And this hypothetical issue that um, made me Uh, the object of uh, ridicule in the mid-90s. A chapter in my book, Constitutional Cliffhangers um, in 2012, when it still was made fun of, but uh, what we'll, we'll see is a court deciding this once and for all, if, as I expect, President Trump does attempt to pardon himself.
0: Thanks. Um, I want to turn things now uh, to Bernie Myler. Um, I should, I think, have mentioned uh, that you also have a very timely book called Theaters of Pardoning. Uh, And I I want to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the book uh, and also your your thoughts on on uh, where things are and might be with uh, this question about whether the president can pardon himself.
2: So first of all, thank you so much, Micah, for inviting me to this panel, which is uh, incredibly timely, and you pulled it together in a very timely fashion as well. Um, So I want to, I'll fold in some comments about my book to my remarks, because I think my perspective on this issue really comes out of looking at the uh, broader Anglo-American common law history having to do with pardoning and the backdrop of the constitutional provision that Brian was telling us about. Um, And my perspective on this is that basically the Supreme Court has interpreted the pardon power too broadly over time. Um, It's interpreted it uh, to the detriment of what should be legislative functions and in excess of the common law conception of pardoning, which lay behind the Article II power. Um, So there are a couple of examples of this that uh, are apart from the presidential self-pardon as well. Uh, One pertains to something that Micah brought up at the beginning, which was about uh, the uh, ability of Trump to pardon the capital rioters. Uh, and I think that that um, traditionally would be thought of as a power of amnesty rather than pardon. Now, after the Civil War and after these uh, battles between Congress and uh, President, uh, uh, President Lincoln and then uh, his successor, that uh, there were uh, very broad determinations by the Supreme Court that said that the power of pardon in article two also includes the amnesty power so that uh, it's not uh, limited simply to an individual pardon of a particular person with a specified set of crimes, but instead that uh, the pardon power can extend more generally to a set of events and a set of people that uh, are maybe unnamed, right? So uh, President Trump under that decision I think could say anyone involved in the Capitol riot is hereby pardoned or anyone uh, of any offenses involved uh, that they've committed. So I think that under current precedent, the Supreme Court has allowed something like a pardon, a general pardon of the Capitol rioters. But I think the tradition of pardoning in uh, England and then America actually tended to separate out those two things. So uh, there were acts of amnesty but also called acts of oblivion within both uh, uh, parliamentary tradition and then also in the colonies in Maryland and other colonies where legislatures would issue things that we would consider uh, amnesties now and they wouldn't be something that um, the king or the governor would would do. So I think that's one area where the presidential pardon power has become aggrandized um, at the expense of the legislature. Now I think also you know there could be some arguments about that with respect to impeachment. I'm not sure where I stand on the this question, but uh, some people have argued that uh, there can't be pardons in cases of impeachment, including uh, pardons of criminal acts that were also the subject of impeachment. I'm not sure I agree with that, but. Um, the question of the relation between impeachment and pardon is another area where um, there may have been some aggrandizement of uh, the presidential power at the expense of the legislature. Um, Now, so as I mentioned before, I think the main problem here is that these interpretations ignore the common law heritage of the pardon power. And I think that that common law heritage helps to flesh out Another point that Brian raised, which was this issue of judging in one's own case. So there's a brief OLC memo saying, well, we don't think that the president can pardon himself because this would involve judging in his own case. There's a prohibition against that. They don't really cite authorities or cite much material to ground that proposition. But I think if you look back into the common law tradition, especially the writings of Sir Edward Cook, and this is something I talk about in my book, There's a Pardoning, um, and also his relation to the natural law tradition um, as expressed in the writings of Jean Baudin, um, a, an important French theorist of sovereignty uh, who Cook was very familiar with. He actually had three editions of his work in his library, uh, one in Latin, one in French, and one in uh, English, and he heavily annotated the, uh, the French version. Um, but both of those, uh, if you look at both of those thinkers, they really provide a foundation for why judging in one's own case would not be permissible. And also why pardoning would be thought of as a form of judging in one's own case. So I think that the, the leaps that the OLC memo doesn't really fill in are first of all, why pardoning is a form of judging. So this is something that uh, you know kind of gets elaborated in the tradition in, in Baudin's work and then also Um, by Cook, but then also why the king uh, shouldn't judge in his own case as well. And so, and this is something Brian was mentioning that maybe, you know, the king was immune, but there was thought um, within the political theory tradition about whether or not the king should be a judge in his own case. And of course, this would come up in civil matters as well, um, and not just in the context of pardoning, but in general, uh, and this kind of carries through Hobbes and others, there was an idea that the king shouldn't be a judge in his own case because this was would offend natural law, and that there were some natural law constraints on what the king could do. Um, and I think one of the areas where uh, not judging in one's own case, one of the cases uh, that really prominently mentions this is Bonham's case, uh, decided by Sir Edward Cook in the early 17th century, and We know from a lot of the literature on judicial review that the members of the founding generation were familiar with Bonham's case. There's a lot of dispute about whether it provides a precedent for judicial review or not. But in this case, what's relevant is that it articulates this principle against judging in one's own case. So I think that that provides a very strong uh, sort of precedent for saying that there is this implicit restriction within the pardon power against the president uh, pardoning himself, which would constitute a form of judging in his own case. So I think I'll leave it there, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion and questions.
0: Thanks, Bernie. Uh, I'll turn it over to John Harrison.
2: Thank you, Micah.
3: I think the president can pardon himself. I don't think it's an easy question, but I think the answer is yes. The first step to that conclusion is to see is. Brian talked about the pardon power in the Constitution. It's pretty general. It's not completely unlimited. It applies only to federal crimes. And it doesn't extend to cases of impeachment. The fact that there are some limits and that this isn't one of them indicates, I don't think what I'm about to say is a knockdown argument, but it indicates that those are the limits. And there there aren't others. So I think the starting point is the power is broad, it can be used for a lot of different reasons, and there's nothing that says it can't be applied to the President himself. That's just a starting point. The next question is, is there anything in the Constitution, including Constitution's historical background, as Bernie Myler was just talking about, that suggests, no, there's an exception to this, isn't it an implicit exception to that, when the President is considering pardoning himself? I don't think there is, but You just heard about what I think is the leading argument that there is such an implicit exception, which is the notion that no one, including the king or the president, should be the judge in his own case. Or to use more 21st century terminology, that the president would have a conflict of interest because he would be the person being pardoned. I think the question for the Constitution is to what extent does it implement these various sort of natural law natural justice, certainly good idea uh, kinds of principles. And so is there a place for that principle as a limit on the pardon power? And I think not. I think the first thing to see is strictly speaking, the president wouldn't be a judge in his own case. He's not just applying law when he gives a pardon to anybody, including himself. He's making a policy decision based on considerations of what's good for the country, possibly considerations of mercy to an individual, considerations of the possibility that there's been a miscarriage of justice. Those are policy considerations. They're not the same thing. They're, they're similar to, but they're not the same thing that a court does when it's applying law. So I think, the what we need for to answer this question is a more exact version of, can the president be a judge in his own case? And that is, are there implicit constitutional principles that limit things presidents and other government officials can do? when they have a conflict of interest. There are, there are some explicit provisions in the constitution about that. For example, the vice president doesn't preside over the impeachment trial of the president because the vice president has a conflict of interest in that and the framers were aware of that, but that's a specific provision. Whereas, and I think this is an important point about the way the constitution works, there isn't a general provision and there's a reason there isn't a general provision that high officers of the government, including especially members of Congress and the president, can't make decisions that affect them personally. Rather, the principle of republicanism is the high officials, the legislators, the chief executive have to live under the laws they make, meaning they're supposed to take into account the effects on them as well as on everybody else of the laws they make. And so, yes, the president can sign or veto a tax bill that's going to have effects on the president's taxes. Members of Congress can vote on tax bills that are going to have effects on their personal taxes. And indeed, the framers certainly contemplated that members of Congress probably would have economic interests that were quite similar to those of a lot of their constituents, and that that was a good thing. Farm districts would be represented by people who owned a farm districts with a lot of commerce would be represented by people who were involved in commerce. That was a positive, not a negative. When there's a conflict of interest problem these days, there's a tendency to think, well, the solution is for that person who has the conflict to be recused, for somebody else to act. Basic feature of the highest levels of government, notably Congress, is there's no substitute for them. If the president's recused, nobody can act. If a member of Congress is recused, nobody can act. And so members of Congress are not recused in voting on legislation that might have an effect on them personally. The House and Senate have rules, if I remember right, saying they're supposed, people are supposed to disclose that, but they continue to participate because if they don't, their constituents are not represented. If my, my representative in the House were recused, I would go unrepresented. Worse that that should happen than that that inv- individual should have a conflict of interest. So there's not a general constitutional principle against conflicts of interest. And there's not a general principle having to do with the pardon power that it can't affect the president personally. President Clinton pardoned his half-brother. That was fine. People can give pardons to those very close to them. Presidents can pardon their children. They can pardon their spouses. Lots of people care more about their children than they care about themselves. If anything is a conflict of interest, it's the possibility of giving a pardon to your child, but the Constitution permits that. There isn't a general principle either broadly or as to the power, pardon power that people can't act when their own interests are being affected. I think the main argument against the president pardoning himself is that would be a terrible thing. And what the, 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 the hypothetical that people have in mind when they think about that is the president has committed a crime and has decided, I don't want to have to go to jail before this. And it's certainly true that the pardon power, like any power, can be misused. But one of the things that people do in law school, and it's a good thing, is learn to think about different hypothetical possibilities that may be cut against their initial presuppositions. So I want to suggest a situation in which it might be quite reasonable for the president to give a pardon to the president. Suppose that President of the United States decides to say to a couple of close aides, and here I will demonstrate that I remember Watergate, you should deep six those documents. And maybe there's a really good reason to deep six the documents. Maybe they would be very embarrassing to the head of another government from which the United States wants something. Maybe deep sixing the documents is a crime in my hypothetical, but maybe it's not The law is unclear about this, as it may well be. And maybe the law is unconstitutional because it unduly intrudes into the president's control of the executive branch. So suppose an act that's a good idea as a policy matter, arguably illegal, but arguably legal, and the law arguably unconstitutional. And the president realizes that the incoming president is a very vindictive political opponent of his, who would love nothing better than to bring a criminal prosecution so as to discredit his predecessor. That president might think, if it were anybody but me, I'd issue a pardon. I'd issue a pardon to the people I told to deep six the document, and prosecuting me in addition to being bad for me would be bad for the country. So I'm gonna pardon everybody including myself. That, I think, would be a legitimate use of the pardon power from the standpoint of its purposes, which include preventing miscarriages of justice and serving the public interest. So just as there are misuses of the power to for the president to pardon himself, there are good uses of the power. And there's a general principle about power, which is it can be misused. Congress can do things that are entirely lawful and are extremely bad policy or extremely bad as a matter of moral principle. Congress can launch a war of aggression. Congress can do that. Congress has done that. That's what the Mexican-American War was. It was entirely constitutional. So yes, power can be misused, but it can also be used for good purposes. And the people in the, in the federal convention in 1787, I think, realized that the person who was in the chair was not going to be there forever. They understood that some of his successors could be people who were not such splendid individuals. But they also hoped, I think reasonably, that most of Washington's successors would be decent people who had the public interest at heart. And so they gave those people a power, including the power to pardon themselves, that can be abused, like any power can be abused, but hoping that it wouldn't normally be abused like most powers would not be abused. And realizing, and this I think is the last point I'll make, and realizing that the consequences of the president pardoning himself for bad reasons would be negative, but they generally wouldn't be disastrous or catastrophic. Important thing to remember, the president can pardon only for offenses against the United States. A lot of the really bad scenarios involving presidential pardons of the president involve conduct that may well violate the law of the state and be separately punishable. So does the Constitution contemplate a bad thing in order to allow bad self-pardons, in order to allow a good thing, good self-pardons? Yes, I think it does. That's the way power works, and there's no way around that.
0: Thanks, John. We have a lot to talk about, um, and there are lots and lots of questions. Let me lead off with this one, uh, which I think um, it picks up on what, what John has been talking about in terms of the abuse of the pardon power. And this question asks, can a president commit treason while in office and pardon him or herself for that crime? I suspect, uh, Brian, that you have thoughts about this and maybe um, some some uh, responses to, uh, to John's comments. So let me start with you, uh, and, and we'll go from there.
1: Sure. Really quickly, I want to um, respond to one thing that John said. Um, Conflict of interest is different from being a judge in your own case. Um, I think uh, John elided the distinction between legislative and adjudicative. And um, if you're doing something in general, like legislation, then yeah, that could affect you. But something adjudicative that's about your own case, not being a judge in your own case, means it's just about you. It's not about everyone and you're part of everyone. It's just about you. So I think that's an important distinction, especially because due process, generally speaking, due process principles only really apply to those adjudicative uh, functions rather than the um, legislative ones. As far as treason is concerned, this question tees up a very important part of the constitutional history. So um, treason is one of the things a president can pardon for. It was the basis of the first pardons that uh, George Washington gave uh, to the uh, Whiskey Rebellion uh, defendants, um, and this troubled people. So when the convention was debating uh, whether the president should have a restriction on his power, one of the things they said was he shouldn't be able to pardon for treason, or if he pardons for treason, there should be more process, um, and. So Edmund Randolph, in proposing a restriction on pardoning for treason said, the president may himself be guilty. The traitors may be his own instruments, And the response that that drew was, if the president be himself a party to the guilt, he can be impeached and prosecuted. That was James Wilson's response. And it carried the day. They didn't restrict the pardon power for treason. Even contemplating that a president might abuse the power, as John said, power can be abused. Even contemplating that the president could abuse the power, they wanted to keep the power broad so that people like George Washington could use it for things like the whiskey rebellion. But note if the, if the uh, safeguard here is that the president can be impeached and prosecuted, you'd be relying on a president who's a traitor, who's leading a treasonous insurrection and pardoning all of his minions to not pardon himself. At, at best, I think that suggests that they didn't even think that a self-pardon might be a thing. But I think reading that uh, back and forth in Madison's notes, it suggests that they thought a self-pardon just wouldn't be a thing. Otherwise, the possibility of hemming in a president like that by prosecuting him wouldn't have given anyone comfort, and they would have voted to restrict the pardon power. Um, so, yeah, the, if the president can pardon himself, maybe he can, maybe he can't, but if he can, he can pardon himself for treason.
0: Um, I have a question from the audience. This one um, is directed to you, Bernie, uh, and it's, uh, it goes like this. Uh, I wonder if you could argue that um, this is not in fact a self pardon. Uh, in English law, the monarchy possesses a duality, the mortal and immortal bodies. Could potentially Trump acting in the immortal capacity of the presidency? Not. I want to. I want to put a maybe an asterisk there, but ask about that. Um, in the immortal capacity of the presidency, pardon the mortal person of Donald Trump, and then not that I want that to
2: happen. Yeah. So I think that's a really fascinating question. I, I have two responses to it. One is that so certainly in the heyday of this concept of the two bodies of the king. I, Charles, the I was tried and executed uh, by a kind of rub parliament, and he didn't think about pardoning himself. So I think if if we had had a, a notion that you know, the immortal uh, kingship could pardon the mortal king that he might have done that now that might actually bring in a different question which someone asked also would Trump have to admit guilt if he were pardoning himself? I think that one of the reasons why Charles, you know, maybe wouldn't have even thought about pardoning himself is that he didn't want to admit that he had done anything wrong, right? So so there's another complication there. But I think if we had this idea of the kind of immortal body of the king pardoning the mortal one, we would have seen it with Charles, which we didn't. And then I think that it's, you know, maybe as Micah was uh, flagging that, I'm, not, I'm hesitant about uh, translating that dual, dual body into the presidency. The most I could think is that maybe the office of the presidency is actually the immortal body, and then the particular president is the mortal body. And so my translation of that principle, you know, if we were thinking about the immortal body pardoning the mortal, would be to say, well, that's why we have maybe successor presidents sometimes contemplating pardoning a prior president, right? Because that's kind of the office of the presidency almost pardoning uh, the acts of a particular president. And I think actually that goes also to John's point, which was very interesting, The example of maybe where we think a pardon might be justified, a self pardon might be justified of a president where I think in general, in a case like what John was describing, we might imagine it's ambiguous enough that a successor president would just pardon the prior president so that we have kind of norms about uh, you know, what's excessive behavior as a president, what isn't and that we might imagine that it, within a particular parameter or a set of parameters, a, a, a later president wouldn't actually impose the law against a, Uh, prior one because of this idea that you're trying to ensure peaceful continuity and don't want to make uh, some kind of political prosecution. So I think that's where, you know, once we get beyond a certain level of violation of norms, then it, you know, there's sort of a free-for-all about what exactly uh, should happen or what does happen. But so that those are the reasons why I think that the, you know, kind of self-pardoning, uh, analogy with the king's two bodies doesn't quite work in this case, but I think it's really interesting.
0: We have a, a, a bunch of questions that are about the mechanics of the pardon power. So I thought maybe we could run through a few of those questions uh, and, and try to get a better sense of how the pardon works. Um, these questions aren't, I think, only about self-pardoning, but, but, um, but are about the content of a pardon. So one question is, um, can the president pardon a group of people? Bernie mentioned uh, this question. Uh, you know, in, in wondering whether um, the pardon power has been interpreted too too broadly. So I, I think that's one one question. Maybe we could talk about. Um. The second question is, can the president, uh, or, um, well, more generally, does the pardon power apply to unspecified acts? How specific do do uh, the crimes that are pardoned need to be? Um, And then a a third, I think, related question is, can the president pardon for future acts or do they have to be uh, backward looking? Maybe we could address those kind of mechanics questions. Um, Brian, can I start with you? And then maybe if others want to weigh in.
1: Sure. Um, So uh, pardoning a group of people, uh, uh, I think is well-precedented. Probably the most recent example is President Carter pardoning the Vietnam era draft evaders. Um, President Johnson, Andrew Johnson, after the Civil War uh, issued pardons to large groups of people. So um, I think there are a lot of theoretical questions that uh, should be explored about the proper bounds as, uh, as uh, Professor Meiler said, but uh, uh, it, it's been done. And then um, specificity Um, There's a recent article by Aaron Rappaport, arguing that there is an implicit specificity requirement. Uh, Frank Bowman has responded to that, I think persuasively that there's not. Although uh, Bowman's argument is a little more nuanced than that, he would suggest that just pardoning someone for everything as Ford pardoned Nixon uh, is not okay. But um, there too, there is precedent. So when Ford pardoned Nixon, it was for everything that Nixon had, uh, any crimes he committed or may have committed while in office, Um, and people say, well, sure, it's been done, Uh, but it wasn't really tested in court, and the Rappaport article shows us pardons like that that aren't specific are very uncommon, you can count them on one or two hands, and so Rappaport's argument that there is a specificity requirement, while Uh, a novel argument is not really fighting up against that much precedent and then on pardoning future acts it's it's, uh, the the supreme court said in ex parte garland uh, once the act has been committed it can be pardoned but you can't pardon future acts but once it's been committed you can pardon someone even if they haven't been charged yet even if they haven't been convicted yet but they do have to have done the act for which you are pardoning them
2: I I would just chime in to say that a lot of these uh, questions about specificity and the groups being pardoned really also relate to this question of the boundaries between pardon and amnesty. Because if you look at um, the history of these so-called acts of oblivion, which were these early modern amnesties, they all have this language of uh, specifying a time period. It's actually very similar to Ford's pardon of Nixon. Uh, They specify a time period um, within which all those committing uh, crimes are gonna be pardoned. And then they say that they, those pardons can be pleaded in court but those are all uh, parliamentary acts. Um, so they're not, uh, they're not issued by the king. So I think that that's um, an important distinction that then the uh, Supreme Court precedent winds up alighting in interpreting the pardon power under the constitution.
0: This question comes from uh, Bill Antholis, who's the director of the Miller Center. And Oh, John, go ahead, let me. Yeah, I, w- I, wanted to, I wanted to say a couple of things. Thanks, sure, Mark, go ahead. About,
3: about, this, about this topic, about, about sort of group pardons, amnesties. The two points, one is all of the British concepts then have to be sort of refracted through the American constitutional system, and in particular, the federal constitution, which has a principle of enumerated powers for the legislature. Congress is not a legislature of general power, and it doesn't have an amnesty power. So I think one reason to think that the American situation at the federal level may be different from either the British situation or what goes on at the state level is it's not clear if the president can't give pardon to a lot of people, not clear anybody can. Another important thing for for both pardons to lots of people and general pardons, like the one that Ford, gave Nixon, is that there are situations in which that may be a very good thing to do. The pardon power isn't just about mercy, it's an important tool of state. And one of the things Federalist talks about is how during a rebellion, a well-timed offer of pardon might be a way to nip the rebellion in the the bud. That's That's a powerful tool of state designed for emergencies, and it might require pardoning a lot of people and for whatever it is they did rather than being able to specify it. So there's sort of a a pragmatic argument supporting the generality of the pardon power there. Thanks, Mike.
0: Great. So uh, let me come back to this question uh, from uh, Bill Antholas, which I think will take us deep into the constitutional weeds, but it's a, a great place to be. The question is this, the House Articles of Second Impeachment Mentioned the 14th Amendment clause prohibiting from office holding anyone who commits acts of insurrection. If the president pre pardons himself of any crime of insurrection, if determined either by a convicted uh, or by the Senate in impeachment in the impeachment process or by the District of Columbia, does that pardon extend also to the punishment of prohibition from office? So here's a, I think, a quite complicated scenario where we're looking at. Uh, section three of the 14th Amendment asking about uh, disqualification because of participation in insurrection. And the question I, I gather is, could the president pardon himself in a way that rescues him from that? I'll start with you, John, and then, and then I'll come to- yeah, I,
3: think, I, think, I think not that section, section three doesn't deal with separate criminality. It just says these acts have certain consequences. And the historical background to section three is they wanted to get around the presidential pardon power. There is a pardon power in section three, but it's in Congress. Both houses of Congress have to vote by two thirds to relieve the disabilities. And during the late 1860s and early 1870s, Congress gradually did that. My recollection is eventually they just lifted it for everybody, universal suffrage and universal amnesty was was the slogan. But that no, the, the section, section three is set up so the so the pardon power doesn't reach that.
0: Bernie,
2: I, I actually I absolutely agree with John, so I don't have anything to add there. That's exactly That's what
0: some of the questions ask, and I, and you've uh, not <clears throat> excuse me nodded to this uh, in some of the um, discussion. But does the president have to confess guilt if he grants a self pardon? Uh, Brian is nodding vigorously. Let me. Let me ask yeah, you.
1: I. I've written about this a lot because um, people talk about it a lot. President Ford talked about it a lot when he pardoned Nixon, and people said, why did you let him get away with this? And, and he would pull this scrap of paper out of his wallet with a citation to Burdick versus the United States. Um, and people talk about this because Burdick said, if you take it out of context, that a, a pardon carries an imputation of guilt and that accepting a pardon is an admission of guilt. But that's not quite right. Uh, what Burdick was saying is, generally speaking, most pardons are for forgiving guilty people. And if you get pardoned, then that might be uh, causing people to say, well, there's something that you're being pardoned for, you did something wrong. And as a result, and here is the point of Burdick, you don't have to accept a pardon in certain circumstances. And so it was just dicta on, uh, about practical perception, not any sort of legal definitive consequence of a pardon. Uh, And as a result, we have plenty of examples, and John mentioned some, plenty of examples of pardons where the president is trying to exonerate someone. Uh, The president is saying this person did nothing wrong and should be protected. Um, Governors in particular do this all the time uh, to save people from execution, perhaps. If, If you're saying that this person did nothing wrong, what guilt is that imputing? So the imputation of guilt is as a practical matter, and it depends on how the president characterizes the action. And in any case, it doesn't have any formal legal effect of imputing guilt. That said, when people get pardoned, it makes them look guilty. That's as a practical matter, something presidents should think about before pardoning someone, but it doesn't have that legal effect. I
2: just wanna add two small things. Uh, One has to do with this idea that The president might pardon someone precisely saying they're not guilty. I think that that actually has been one of Trump's mechanisms in his prior pardons that his, in a way they're indicting the legal system for certain kinds of crimes that he doesn't believe should be crimes or that he thinks are, you know, unjust prosecutions. Uh, And so that they're making a political statement in that respect. But then, secondly, I think that in terms of the history, yes, I definitely, you know, accepting a pardon doesn't mean that you're guilty. But in, historically, people have often been reluctant to accept pardons because they feel that it kind of casts shame on them um, as a an acceptance of guilt. And so, even you know, in the 19th century, someone agreed to be executed instead of uh, being pardoned because they felt that it was too shameful to be pardoned. So I think there is this history where people have been reluctant to accept pardons because they feel that it implies guilt.
0: There are a couple of questions that ask about the possibility of limiting the pardon power and how that might happen. And then one that asks, or maybe a way of formulating this question would be to say, if there's a pardon for a crime that hasn't been charged yet, could that pardon be undone by a future president or could there be prosecutions that take place afterwards? So the broad question is about limitations. Maybe the narrow one is about: Can a pardon be undone in the future?
3: Yeah, I, 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 think, I think not. I, I know of no attempt at the federal level by a subsequent president to undo a prior pardon. But I think it would be ineffective. The idea of the pardon, it is, it is in this respect like a grant. I think it's unlike a grant in some other respects, and and so it can be given to oneself, but. It's, uh, it creates what would be called, uh, especially in the 18th and 19th century, a vested right. That is to say, it's an irreversible legal act. It washes away guilt. Supreme Court has used language like that in describing the, the pardon power. And if the guilt has been washed away, it can't be brought. It can't be brought back. Other principle the Supreme Court has stated is Congress can't interfere with the effects of the pardon. It is whatever those effects are. They come out of the Constitution. President can do it, and Congress can't uh, un- uh, undo any of that. And I and I think that's right. I think that comes from this being a power given to the president, and with no authority in Congress to do anything about it.
1: I, I, I think that. Oh, go I, ahead.
2: You you can go ahead. Um, go
1: ahead. I that that's right, and it's important. U.S. versus Klein. Um, there were a lot of uses of the pardon power that President Johnson used that the. Uh, Republican Congress wanted to override and, and the Supreme Court wouldn't let them. They have a mechanism for controlling the pardon power, which is the impeachment power, uh, if it's abused. Um, and and um, I, I think um, as far as a preemptive pardon or, or uh, reversing that, it's, um, as John said, once it's final, it's final. But there have been cases where presidents have tried to undeliver uh, pardons. Uh, and so you get into some technical questions about when is it final? Uh, does it have to be delivered? Does it have to be accepted? And there have been some interesting cases on that. But once it's delivered and accepted, there's no question that it's final, even if it's a preemptive pardon.
2: So I just want to raise one other question that I think is related to this that I saw in the chat, which is, uh, you know, kind of how President Trump, President Trump's self-pardon, if he did one, would come into court. Now I think that. You know, he could self-pardon but then a future administration could say we don't believe that's valid and still prosecute him right and then at that point he would say well i have a pardon you can't prosecute me that would have to be adjudicated so i think that that would be how i would envision a self-pardon coming into court in this instance
3: john i just for the for the, especially for the lawyers in the audience i want to say about whether the pardon has to be delivered on the subject whether a commission has to be delivered for an appointment to become effective, there is a case on that subject.
0: Yeah, yeah. signed, sealed, delivered. <clears throat> <laughs> Could you say a little more about how a pardon might be litigated, why it, it might come up, what would be some vehicles or cases that would raise the question of whether the pardon was legitimate? How would this constitutional question get into court in the first place? John?
3: Well, Bernie just, I think, mentioned the, the easy way for it to come in is for, uh, is a subsequent federal prosecution. And then the pardon would be pleaded as the defense. And the question would be, is the pardon valid because it was granted by the president to himself? I think one of the interesting, and here we'll get down into the weeds again, but it's an interesting question, issues is if President Trump were to pardon himself, could a subsequent president bring a declaratory proceeding saying Trump is liable to be prosecuted without saying we're prosecuting him because the pardon was invalid. That would be a slightly less, a slightly lower stakes way to raise the issue. And there would then be the question: is a prosecution sufficiently likely that the declaratory proceeding is right for constitutional purposes, which it might be. So I would I would add that to the list as possible modes through which this could come into court.
1: I think it could come up uh, also earlier if there were investigations or subpoenas uh, that would be inconsistent with there being a pardon. And uh, then if it's not a preemptive pardon, if this is just restoring someone's rights afterwards, a pardon could be challenged um, in that context. So someone, uh, President pardons himself from some conviction that he had before uh, and, and then says, now I, now I have the power to, I don't know, uh, have a gun or, or vote or something else. It, it's unlikely to come up in the context of a self pardon, I suppose. But um, if, if they then deny the person that right and they say, oh, but I have this pardon and they say, well, no, you don't, then, then it, could, it could be adjudicated in that context too. We
0: have a set of questions about the relationship between uh, the pardon power and impeachment which I think is quite confusing um, even to uh, many people who've studied these issues so I wonder if if you all could speak to this issue it, the the way the pardon power is described in the Constitution it's not effective um, as against impeachments what what does that mean in the current context especially given that we we currently have a second impeachment but not yet a trial um, or a, um, a let alone a conviction. And, um, and it's possible the president might self-pardon for related actions in between when an impeachment happened and, uh, and uh, when a Senate trial might take place. Does any of that matter? Or uh, you know, how, how are these two uh, powers related to each other?
1: I, I, I got to jump in here because I've been uh, dealing with this. I've gotten a lot of questions about this. So sure. when it says, except in cases of impeachment, um, cases of impeachment means the impeachment proceedings themselves. The, um, the impeachment power, the Constitution separates impeachment on the one hand from the criminal process on the other in a lot of ways. So for instance, it says trials are by jury, except impeachment. There, um, there's no double jeopardy problem. You can still be prosecuted even if you've been convicted because they're separate. Same thing. Pardons are just for the criminal consequences. They don't affect the impeachment proceedings, even if the criminal case is related. Um, and there is a theory, Corey Brettschneider and Jeffrey Tulis have been pushing this theory that uh, when the House impeaches, that means that the president can't pardon anyone for anything related to that impeachment. I find that a remarkable uh, argument. I, I've um, written a, blog, a long blog post sort of picking apart their historical argument. It just, it just doesn't hold water. Uh, and, and besides the textual problems that that has, the notion that one house, uh, just by impeaching, could strip the president of his powers, just as a structural matter, is remarkable. But I, I, I'm not going to go through my blog post and all the historical evidence, but it just means you can't stop an impeachment. You can't undo an impeachment conviction. That's uh, it, it doesn't affect criminal pardons related to that
0: case. Bernie?
2: Yeah. So I would just say to add to that um and i haven't looked at their historical arguments in sufficient detail to sort of have a full view on this but you know my view is that the framers added this no pardoning in cases of impeachment because of the british history there which involved the king trying to pardon uh people who were impeached and then that causing a real separation of powers conflict where parliament you know, was trying to impeach people at the same time as, as the king was um, attempting to pardon them. So I think that that was kind of the, the historical situation that they had in mind.
0: John, go ahead.
3: Yeah, I also haven't read the work Brian was just talking about, but I think as a structural matter, it's pretty clear as he was saying that the regular criminal process and the impeachment process, and that's what cases of impeachment means, are just siloed from one another. They are entirely they are entirely distinct and I think what that means is there's no influence in either direction. That is to say a pardon that's effective in the on the criminal side has no effect on impeachment and what's going on on the impeachment side has no effects on with with respect to regular criminal prosecutions. We
0: we still have a long uh, set of questions. I I'm gonna take this opportunity to ask a question that is on many people's minds, even though it's not directly related to the pardon power, but because we have a group of constitutional experts who have studied uh, not only the pardon, but also the impeachment process. A lot of people want to know, um, can, um, can a Senate trial happen after uh, the inauguration? And this question's come up repeatedly in the chat. So I'm just, even though it's not directly on the self pardon question, I'm gonna ask you this question anyway, because it's on a lot of people's minds.
1: So I wrote this thing about can the president pardon himself and people said that's ridiculous. 2001, I wrote a 50,000 word article on just this question. Went through all the evidence. Uh, It's a complicated question. It's a very interesting question. I can't go through all 50,000 words, but my short answer is looking at the evidence. Yes, uh, there are precedents for it. We're going to see arguments against it. The Senate will vote. But on balance, the evidence supports late impeachability. That's my take,
0: Bernie or John. You want to weigh in? I didn't ask. I didn't ask you to address this, but uh, I'll give you a chance if you want to. Bernie,
3: I, 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 I think I. I don't know as much about this as Brian, but I. But from based on what I do know, I think it's not an easy question, but I think the answer is yes. The impeachment trial and the consequences, in particular, disqualification, can be can be imposed. Afterwards, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky one. It's not. That's not the central case, but I think that it is. I think that's that it's included.
0: And my last question was going to be about your over/under on whether the president will, in fact, pardon himself. But I, I think I, I won't put that question to you as experts. I just at this point want to. Thank you uh, for sharing your knowledge about this uh, very important constitutional question with us. I want to thank all of you in the audience uh, for joining us and for your really excellent questions. Uh, There were many more that I'm sorry we won't have a chance uh, to get to, uh, but we've we've reached our time. Um, I hope you'll join us, uh, the Karch Center, and also the Miller Center, who's co-sponsoring this event. For future events, keep an eye out for updates and for uh, news on on, uh, upcoming programs. Um thanks for joining us.